Welcome to Allocation Disorder episode, I think like eight or nine or ten or something. I, I've lost track, Paul, but that doesn't really matter. How's it going tonight? I'm just glad to be back. I, I took a week off last week for uh, our did. team team episode, and I'm um, just you know glad to be back here with you. Yeah, I'm glad to have you back. You know, um, it's it's nice to have you back off the bench. Hopefully, your confidence didn't suffer too much um, from the demotion. But you know, I trust that you'll bounce back in in solid fashion now that you're given the opportunity. Anyway. I digress. Uh, the big news of the week, Paul, is that U.S. soccer decided to shut the Development Academy effective immediately for both boys and girls. Uh, this is a story to toot our own horns that we broke earlier this week. Um, the ramifications are pretty massive for the youth soccer um, in this country, quite obviously, um, and for pro soccer in terms of how MLS and USL clubs in particular develop um, young talent Less so for NWSL, although there are some ramifications there, too. We're going to focus mainly on the boys' side today, um, for those of you listening, just because that's kind of what Paul and I know best. Um, We might dive into the girls' side maybe on a future episode or a future article or or something along those lines. But for tonight, anyway, for this episode, it's going to be focused mainly on the boys' side of things. Um, So anyway, without any without any further ado, Paul, what what uh, what can you tell us about the DA closing up shop and U.S. soccer deciding to do that on uh, on pretty short notice and pretty out of nowhere? Well, a couple of things. I think the first thing is it's 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 a little surreal. Um, You know, for me personally, when I started my journalism career back in 2007 at The Washington Post, covering the launch of the the DA was one of the first things that I did um, in soccer journalism professionally. And so you're getting old, man. I know it, it really does make me feel old and it, and it makes me feel sad because the DA came into the picture with so much hope on what it was going to do for American soccer. And mainly the idea was that it was going to finally create some kind of clear pathway and organization that pushed back against kind of the fractured nature of youth soccer that's long existed in this country. And I think in some ways, um, the DA was successful in in implementing certain things into American youth soccer, but uh, it certainly didn't solve the the many problems that exist uh, still within the youth ranks. And so it'll have a mixed legacy and that's to be expected. I think the most interesting thing is that a big part of its legacy is going to be how it ended, how quickly this decision came to be at U.S. soccer, how quickly not only that they reached the decision, but then put it into action and how they left so many teams with, you know, kind of in the lurch by, by doing it so quickly. And that will have ramifications. It could have, you know, Sam, you and I have both had conversations with, I would say we're probably like what over 20 people across different leagues, youth leagues, pro leagues, and everyone has different ideas about the success and failure of the DA, what should happen next, all of that. One consistent thing we've heard. The difference in opinions is staggering. (laughs) and, And yet the one consistent thing we've heard is that the way this all ended was a mess and is not the, was not handled the right way to maximize 
or I guess to smoothly transition and and yeah. keep minimize you really the pain, right? Right, minimize the damage and minimize the um, confusion that would occur. And and so now we'll see what that fallout is of of doing it this way. Yeah, and to be exceedingly fair to U.S. soccer, I don't think there is a good way to do this. Right? It was going to be painful no matter what. Um, and you know, I think you could maybe make an argument that doing it now, um, when you don't even know when you're going to be able to play games again because of the COVID-19 outbreak, um, maybe it buys some teams some time. I don't think I would make that argument, but maybe there's a line of thinking that goes like that out there. Um, you know, the, the kind of way it came about, it's, it's not good, but at the same time, it's like, you can kind of understand why they maybe just want to rip off the bandaid. That's not how I would have done it. Um, but maybe, maybe you can understand. I mean, I know, I know one thing that we've both heard is like, okay, why not just do this, but give it a year runway. So play the 2020, 2021 DA season, um, and then fold after that. And, and you give whatever's next time to kind of really formulate without being rushed. Um, and I think that's a reasonable line of thinking. Um, but that's not how it's happening. Um, and so instead all of the hundreds of clubs, uh, professional and non-professional involved on both the boys and girls side, um, have been scrambling really over the last, the the course of the last few days this week, um, to figure out what's next. And that's starting at least a little bit to come into focus. Um, and you know, I know we have a few other things to cover, um, before we get down that road. So I don't want to go all the way down there, but, um, Paul, in, in your opinion here, I am curious what kind of sense, do you get and how much do you think that finances at us soccer played a role in this decision? Oh, it definitely played a role. It definitely played a role. And I think, um, I, I think it, it was a factor. I don't think it was the only factor. And I think that the reality is that us soccer, like many, many businesses around the country have, have suffered financial losses due to the, the current pandemic. They lost um, in money that's been invested. Uh, they lost. And when you revenue. say money that's been invested, just to clear that up, that's that's kind of the, you know, you hear about the 100, 120 million in surplus. A lot of that is tied up in the stock market and in the investment market and things like that. And so a lot of that money kind of went away recently when the market crashed from sure. what we've been told anyway. Exactly. I mean, it, anyone who's had, who has money invested is not, I don't think I've seen a, a, a profit uh, in the market. Um, and, and Unless you got when, Zoom stock. <laughs> when you've got $120 million tied up in different funds, uh, the reality is those are going to take a hit. And, and you're going to lose revenue with no games being played. You're not going to be getting paid by, uh, by um, corporate sponsors and things like that when you're not fulfilling those those yeah, there's no those friendlies, games. there's no match tickets that you're selling, all of that stuff. And, and, and also importantly, you're expecting to make a big payment here coming up. Sure. And and that's the big other factor, right, that we have to talk about is not only do they have these lawsuits and the, the fees that come with them, but they are going to try to settle this lawsuit. And the U.S. Women's National Team is seeking $67 million in damages as part of this equal pay lawsuit. Uh, and so you have to expect an eight-figure settlement number and you you take all those things and you factor them in to the other side of things which is the reality is also that u.s soccer i think was lukewarm or was was not as 
I'm trying to think of the right way to put this, Sam. There there was a movement within some areas of U.S. soccer to get out of the academy business. And, you know, that was separate from the financial issues we talked about. And so it wasn't just the finances. But when you add in the cost, which is right around $12 million total. There we go. So, you know, you cut $12 million out of the budget right off the bat, boom. And, um, you know, the flip side of that, there have been people that I spoke to that said, you know, look, they, they didn't need to do it this quickly. They right now are not incurring many of the costs that come with the academy, right? The referees fees and, you know, paying for field, all, all sorts of things. Yeah, are, they're are, not paying to travel any teams to playoffs or finals week this year because right. the season's so, cut short. Right, exactly. But but they, they looked at that as a pretty big figure to, to chop off the budget. And, um, and that's what they did. And I think, you know... The, again, I think the question comes down to did they need to do it this way? Could they have provided more support to leagues and clubs um, to try to smooth this transition where you're not seeing now kind of an onrush of clubs looking for new homes all at once? Yes, probably. And I, I know that they made some efforts to to coordinate early on and then news, you know, the rumors started to leak and then that kind of accelerated the plan. But um but sometimes with with you soccer, like you know, you're not going to keep something secret. You just have to anticipate that, and and, and yeah, let it and be you a can say, hey, this is happening. We're still working out the exact details and next steps. You know, there are different PR strategies you can take. Um, but really, I mean, the cat's out the bag now. You know, like it's done. It's not coming back, and the clubs are left to figure out what's next. And there's a big, huge, gaping void. And, you know, the ECNL is going to fill some of that void. Um, you know, Paul, you you spoke with, with the president of the ECNL, which is, for those who don't know, it's the Elite Clubs National League. And it's sort of a competing league on both the boys and girls side. It's actually viewed already as kind of the premier girls league. Um, so a lot of girls teams will, will go into that. Some will not. Some of the girls teams that were in the DA probably won't end up in the ECNL. Some boys teams have already announced that they're going to be in the boys ECNL. So, so that's going to be a home for some of these teams and, you know, MLS is going to have something that works too. And, uh, I, you know, I, I would like to get into that, you know, obviously the, the way that this was handled, I don't think was great. And, and I think there is a conversation to be had maybe later in the show about new U S soccer CEO, Will Wilson and, you know, new president, Cindy Parlo Cohn and kind of their role in this because the, their, they both took over last month and, and, you know, they played a big role in this decision, uh, maybe even the driving forces. So, um, that's that there's something to that too. But for me anyway, the big discussion to be had is kind of what's next. Um, and we, we reported a little bit about that the other day. Um, but you know, MLS is going to come out and they're going to try and lead the charge. Um, initially, you know, MLS, MLS has been in the business of trying to get out of the DA, at least certain MLS teams for years now. They think that they could have done a better job with an MLS only Academy league, um, where they could raise the level of competition and kind of have more autonomy to do what they want. Um, it doesn't look like that's actually going to happen. Um, there was kind of a change of heart there, uh, late in the game, um, where they're going to be a little bit more inclusive and cover more geographic areas and maybe include some USL teams and maybe include some non-professional teams. So it's going to be interesting to see how all of that shakes out. But, um, Paul, what's your kind of take on, on how this is all shaping up, um, kind of for the elite youth players and in the future of development here in the U S well, before we dive into the boys side in MLS, I do want to say I had an interesting conversation with uh, a power broker within the girls side. And I think there are going to be some girls teams. 
Yeah, I think there are going to be some girls teams that potentially look to band together and create a new league um, that is that includes many former DA clubs and that could end up being uh, a comp- uh, some competition to the ECNL, which you know we didn't have in our story yesterday, but as we've continued to report that that popped up today, and I think that's really interesting and and worth keeping an eye yeah. on um, because that sure. that that matters if there's competition. Um, you know, if there's not a monopoly, if, if there are clubs that don't fit in the ECNL. So that's one interesting thing to keep an eye on. On the boys' side, I think the most interesting part of this whole thing is like, as you, as you mentioned, Major League Soccer has had a contingency plan for leaving the DA for some time, a, a couple years probably is a, a conservative years, yeah. way to say it. And yet after, after putting together this plan or these plans, I think there were multiple versions of the plan. They pivoted last minute and they decided to to be more inclusive. And that's an important decision. And I think and I and I'm gonna editorialize a little bit. I hope that as they continue to build and figure out what this looks like, and it's very much in flux right now and, and changing rapidly and happening uh, at a, a, a very quick pace. I mean, they're they're trying to do this in the next two weeks, get this league, you know, settled and formed. Right. I hope that they take the long-term view because, you know, in the short-term, MLS wants the best clubs that they can get, the highest level of competition for their academies. That was the whole point of leaving the DA in in the first place. But if you start to judge clubs based on short-term results and you're looking at their their records in the DA over the last few years – and you are looking at, for example, the USL academies that most of which are far beyond behind the, the level of MLS teams. And you're saying, well, they can't be included because they're not good enough. What you're going to do is hurt the long term growth of the sport. And I think whatever MLS does, the long term growth and development of players, growth of the sport and the ability to reach more markets and more kids is paramount. And so they have to figure out a way. Maybe it's a, a multi-tiered league that that kind of slowly integrates some of the, the clubs that need to need to grow and accelerate their programming, especially USL clubs. But if they if they take the shorter term view, then I think that this will just be the the next league in a list of leagues that that eventually goes away and fades away. And and that would be a shame, especially for a league that has long operated in the professional scene with with long-term goals in mind. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how it shakes out. And let, let me just kind of walk it back a little bit and explain why there were segments of MLS teams that wanted to get out of the DA for years. Basically, long story short, they felt like the DA wasn't providing a high enough level of consistent competition. You know, there were some teams that that were that were great. There were some teams that were solid, um, but there were a lot of teams that they felt like they would go out and smash. And a lot of these MLS teams, right, if you look at the DA standings, maybe they're in the middle, maybe they're at the top, but they're not dominating. And you're like, well, that doesn't really match up with that narrative. And what the MLS teams will tell you is, well, actually, we were we were playing kids, you know, a couple age groups up. Um, and, you know, maybe we're playing against these teams, but they don't have any tactics. They don't have a style of play that we're trying to play against. And it, it's just not conducive to what we want. 
Um, so that's sort of their line of thinking. The other part of it is that they want more dates to schedule against international opponents. You've seen MLS create the Generation Adidas Cup, uh, which features a lot of the top academies from around South America and Europe and elsewhere. Asia, I think, has been in the mix. Central America, too. Um, and so they want more room to schedule dates like that. So, you know, having this new league, whether it's MLS only, which it doesn't seem like it's going to be, or, you know, a smaller um, league that includes non-pro teams or USL teams, but is smaller than the DA, will give them the room, in theory, to go out and schedule more international opponents, which is something that's very important to them. Um, and it'll also give them the room to, you know, or not the room, but it'll also kind of create a system where they feel it's it's higher caliber than before, and they'll have higher quality games. So that's kind of the the reasoning behind this, and I know Paul touched on some of that, so I'll stop repeating him and myself here, I promise. Um, but that's kind of kind of what they were looking at. It is really interesting to me that they're going more inclusive here at the last second because I think it's gonna that's something that will hurt MLS clubs in the short run, right? You know, if they, if there are small if there are fewer teams, then it's probably safe to say the average team is gonna have higher quality and you're gonna be able to funnel more and more of the top kids into your own MLS academies as as opposed to expanding the league. But you know to state the very obvious, the United States is a large country, um, and there are 26 cur- teams currently in MLS. There will be 30 before too long, and probably 32 um, at some point in the future after that. But even with that amount of clubs, you're, you're missing a ton of, of kids that play soccer. Just, you know, you're not in all the areas that you need to be in. Um, and so I think it's wise to kind of expand that. Um to cover more kids, cast a wider net, you know, something that, that we talk about a lot. Um, and you know, uh, there are real cost concerns here for any Academy team. And if you're an MLS team and you're only playing other MLS teams, well, guess what? That's a lot of plane rides and that, that gets expensive pretty quick. If you're including USL, well, then Houston doesn't have to travel to Kansas city every weekend, right? Maybe they can go to San Antonio or Austin who has an MLS and a USL team or the Rio Grande Valley or El Paso. That would be a flight, but you get the picture, right? You can lower costs. You can make it a little more regional, which I think could be interesting. And I don't know, like the the format of the league, it's going to shake out how it shakes out. To me, one of the things that the DA did, and there was a lot of talk before the DA started and as it was starting, that youth soccer focused too much on results and not enough on development, right? And I think there was a lot of truth to that. You know, Paul, you can attest to this. Like, coming up, you know, I played, you played a higher level than I did, but I played an okay level. And it was two training sessions a week and then a game on the weekends, and then sometimes you'd go to tournaments and play three, four, five games on a weekend, right? And that was it. You didn't train that much. Um, And then you played high school ball in the fall or the spring. And, you know the DA switched that around. It was a lot of training sessions, fewer games, um, more focus on process, more focus on the curriculum that U S soccer implemented from the top down. Um, and I think that had a lot of positive effects. I think I would argue that maybe we have more, the average player is probably more technical now. I think that's a reasonable thing to say. Um, but I think, I think there needs to be kind of, um, I think that was an overcorrection a little bit and they got a little bit too far away from results. Cause I still think those are important in youth soccer and in development. It's okay. If you're going to go out there and win six, nothing sometimes it's okay to get in a really hard fought game that teaches you things as a player. And I feel like that's been a little bit lost in the DA. And I think whatever emerges out of this needs to kind of 
thread that needle a little bit, find that happy medium, um, more between results and development. Obviously you still want development. You still want to have standards for coaching. You know, I didn't have like coaches when I was a kid, <laughs> you know, I didn't learn things like technique. Like it was just something that you you did through trial and error on your own. And that's not great. You know, <laughs> you want, you want coaches that can actually go out and teach players. Um, so, you know, you, you want to have minimum standards for all of these things. Um, but maybe a little bit less, less of a mandate and allow some more room for freedom within the individual clubs. I think that would be a, that would be a wise thing to do regardless of, of the league that emerges out of this. Yeah. You brought up a few interesting points. Um, and I'm going to try to kind of go back to some of them and, and, and give my perspective. I I talked for like five minutes there. So my bad. No, it's, you know, I, I, I'm, there's, there's so many different ways to go here and, you know, I'm thinking about my own experiences growing up and I'm still in touch with, you know, I spoke my, the other day to my coach, Clyde Watson, who's the technical director for McLean, which is an ECNL club, but used to be a DA club. He's, you know, a, a longtime coach in the DC area. He's in the Virginia DMV Soccer Hall of Fame. And, you know, it was a radical move that Clyde made when I was towards the end of my, my youth career when we went to four training sessions a week. And, we started to integrate um, the age group underneath us to train with us in order to help the younger kids along as well as just for, you know, it hurt our training theoretically. But, you know, the idea was to create a club. And I was talking to a, a DOC, no, I was talking to a CSO from Major League Soccer about, about what it used to be like back in the day. And, you know, we brought up a, a chief soccer officer. Uh, yeah, we brought up a, a tournament that existed that that got launched at Disney, and the idea of the of the tournament was to get the very best clubs in the country in one place at one time it would make it easier to recruit players, it would have the highest level of competition. And the you know I joked about the first year the t shirt that you could buy had like four soccer balls on the back, and every club was listed on those balls, and it was like I don't know a handful of clubs, right, like thirty clubs or something like that. And the next year. It was so successful that what happened? What do you think happened with youth soccer? Money was there. <laughs> Everyone wanted in. They invited a lot more teams. And the next year, it was like 200 <laughs> clubs, right? The the back was like this tiny print of all of these 200 clubs that were suddenly invited to be a part of this tournament. And that that is the constant battle that exists between exclusivity and inclusivity, the money that dictates things, the competition level the value of getting the very best players in one place, the importance of seeing as many players as you can in a country this big. And it's very difficult to balance those two things. And and here we go again with another league being formed and those battles are still in place. You know, there's still going to be a lot of corporate sponsorships and money that wants to get in on having the best teams in one place, right? Dallas Cup for a really long time, still to this day, GA Cup now. And now all these other mini tournaments that are going to pop up in these open weekends that MLS is building in, you know, there's still going to be really good clubs that aren't MLS teams that are going to be worthy of being in a top tier competition. And, and you're going to want to see their kids. And, you know, there's an importance to inclusivity, as I mentioned before, and, and trying to help these USL academies grow and, and get better coaching and better games and, and bring them up along with you the same way, you know, 
our club tried to do bringing in a younger team or what we've seen MLS clubs do or even the design of the USL Academy is to have the very best U15 through U19 players all on one team. So, you know, the point of that is, is like these issues haven't changed. And the the problem is finding the right format to make them all work together. And I think that MLS... You know, the, the the positive side of it is that I think MLS is coming from a place of development. And I get what you're saying about what the games need to look like and embracing individuality. I've heard that many, many times from, from MLS sources in the last 24 hours or 48 hours now, I guess. I, I think they understand that they need to inject a little bit more competitiveness into the academies and a little bit more grit and a little bit less of the structure that existed in the DA. Um, and, and I think a big part of that is the international games. Um, but the most important thing for me is I think there's a recognition that the, the reason for the inclusivity is to open a wider pathway into their pro clubs. And People aren't going to want to hear that because then it just becomes, well, of course, MLS teams are just in it for themselves. They want these other clubs to be a part of their league so they can poach the kids. But yeah, I mean, yes, that's the end game, you know, just like it is in every other country in the world. The top teams in the top league want to be where the best players end up. And and I think that that viewpoint, that model is important and it's going to be what makes this league different and what made the DA a little bit different because there wasn't a pro pathway that existed before. So um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I just think, you know, there, that is still the most important, the whole point of quote unquote academies is to get to a pro team. And so if you're going to have an academy system, that's what it should be about. Yeah, 100%. And finances play a big role in that, as with everything else in youth soccer and soccer in general, right? And so, I mean, Paul, help me out here. It's full disclosure. It's almost midnight on the East Coast, and I am I am uh, struggling to remember the exact rules of solidarity payments between domestic clubs and how exactly that works. Yeah, there are none um, right now. But, exactly, there are none. So... You know, if if a player leaves Chicago Soccer and at sixteen and then goes to the Chicago Fire and signs a pro deal at eighteen, um, well, then shouldn't Chicago Soccer be a little compensated for that? You know, so like if you if you actually implement the rules, and that's a U.S. soccer thing um, and an MLS that that touches every level, right? But if you actually implement that a system that would allow that, then I think you would get a lot more people on board pretty quickly um, with the quote-unquote poaching um not that a lot of them aren't already on board a lot of people do get that at these non-professional clubs right and they want they want the kids to go to mls right that's the highest level they can get to in 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 the united states um but if if you kind of make it worth their while that process is going to be a lot easier um so i don't know i think it's going to be really interesting and it's going to be really interesting to see kind of if mls decides to do a curriculum like u.s soccer did and how intense that is and what the minimum standards are and how much they dictate from the top down um because i don't know this is just my opinion but i don't think they should do a ton of that i think they should kind of let clubs 
be what they want to be because guess what the what works for the Seattle Sounders doesn't work for you know a team in Bakersfield California right and what works for that team in Bakersfield California well that might not work for Bethesda only right um, every club has different needs the geographic diversity the makeup of different clubs in terms of what kind of players they're drawing and all of that stuff is so so different um, and I don't I think to to try and dictate like that from the top down, what, what they should play like and how they should look like and exactly what their staffing needs to be. Um, I think it's, it's a fool's errand in many ways. And I think even trying to implement like a national footballing style in a country like the U S is, is kind of ridiculous to be totally honest. Um, I think you need to let that stuff sort of form organically. I think you need to let these youth clubs do what they think is best for them. Um, and then, you know, let the cream rise to the top, right? And if if a certain team does things really well and another team wants to do things in that same way really well, well, guess what? They're going to copy what that team's doing, right? So um, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm very anti the, the top-down structuring and I think it's going to be very interesting to see what MLS does in terms of how it dictates things or doesn't yeah, dictate you know, things. It's been an interesting couple days for me because – and Sam, I think you're the same here. Oftentimes, when it comes to league issues, I think people would would say that we kind of agree more often with the CSOs than we do with the product strategy committee and the the, the MLS HQ decision makers. And we see sure. the CSOs push for growth and for spending and their ideas about how to move the league forward as you know, more realistic, making more sense, the smarter decisions. Um, right. And and I don't know. I've, I'm kind of used to disagreeing with uh, with HQ. Um, and in this area, I think that for the most part, or for at least for parts of, I don't want to say every conversation or every um, chief soccer officer of, of an MLS team, yeah, because um, there are divergent there, opinions. There's definitely divergent opinions. Yeah. And even within one conversation, there are things you agree with and disagree with, with with this. But I do think that, you know, their job is to do what's best for their specific club. And and it's to do what's best for their club in the short term and in the long term, but with a, with a, a, a greater emphasis on the short term to win now. And right. Maybe medium term if you're a GM. Yeah. Next five years. Sure. Yeah. And, and that is not... In this case, especially in this case, that is not the task of Major League Soccer in setting up a youth development league. The long-term viewpoint has to win out. And so if we immediately get to a point where we're talking about permanent tier settings or we're still not can't have we're still it. not have integrating it. solidarity payments or we maintain homegrown territories things that limit oh kids, then yeah. then what you're going to do is you're going to run into the same problems that have existed time and time again. And especially with an idea like what you just said, something as simp- that seems as simple and as easy as letting a team play their own style, their own system, and let those identities happen, you know, that makes things a lot harder for player development in a country as big as the United States when you have rules like homegrown territories. If there's a kid growing up in New York City who, you know, doesn't make the NYCFC team and doesn't fit the high-pressing Red Bull style, well, 
now he can't sign with Philadelphia or Minnesota or Chicago. Pick right. a team without getting without getting permission. Without from getting one of the permission New York and get and them having to pay money and all of this stuff. Not because they want the kid or they signed the kid to a contract or they've had him training for multiple years. But just because they don't have to let him yeah, go. Yeah, because of his address, right? And that, yeah. you know, those are the types of things that limit player development. And it, and so if you're going to now officially get into the business of player development countrywide beyond the scope of your teams, you have to remove some of those limitations and solidarity payments have yeah. to be the top of the list. Homegrown territories have to be next. And then you have to come up with a competitive structure that maybe it begins in a tiered format in order to allow some of the other as long pro- as there's an ability between to move between the tiers. I don't, yeah. I don't have and, any problem and with it, with, a, with an end goal of having everyone under one umbrella competing against each other so that you have a regional league that requires less spending. I mean, I, I spoke to a, multiple CSOs today that said six, you know, two thirds of their budget is travel for Academy two thirds. Yeah. And so if you can create a regional league that you decrease those costs, it becomes a lot easier for more kids to participate. Uh, You know, MLS clubs should all be fully funded, but for, for some of the other clubs. So, you know, that's gotta be a big focus as well. So uh, there, there are all these issues. They've always existed, man. And now, you know, us soccer is pulling out and they're, they're, Handing that responsibility to the ECNL and USYSA, to any new leagues that pop up, and now to Major League Soccer as well. And I think it's it's critical for MLS to say, okay, we fought or or we haven't agreed to some of these decisions before because you know some of our CSOs didn't want it, and it makes things harder, you know, to have to compete against more clubs. No, that's got to go to the side. That doesn't matter in the big picture. These are the things that matter for development and to get the best players eventually into the best academies, into the pro fields, onto the national team, and and to grow the sport. And that's got to be the goal. And and that, to me, is the biggest test that MLS will face because, frankly, they they haven't been great at kind of setting aside the short-term needs and desires of mls the business and and this is this is a this is a huge test on on that philosophy yeah and that's particularly i think first of all that's very well said particularly you know they've they've been they've struggled with that when it comes to the academy game you know mls teams particularly at the beginning of the da era when a lot of these academies were starting up for mls teams they pissed off a lot of the youth clubs with how they acted and how they behaved and how they sort of stormed into these markets without any regard for anybody else right so a lot of those relationships are not great (laughs) even to this day um and so that's something that you know they kind of need to repair um and it's going to be interesting to see um, how the egos involved manage that process, the egos involved on all sides. Um, but another thing, you know, that, that I think is worth mentioning is even if MLS did an MLS only Academy league, they wouldn't be prepared to kind of take advantage of it. Right. Because if you do that MLS only Academy league and that stands alone at the top, um, well then you're going to, even more kids are going to want to go into MLS academies because that's the the even clearer route. It's the highest level. It's the even clearer route to the pro games. You're making yourself more attractive, right? But it's not like these teams have youth scouts all over the place. You know, it's not like, and it's not like they have the capabilities financially 
um, particularly coming out of the COVID-19 suspension for the league when all these teams are taking financial hits. It's not like they have the capabilities to go out and hire a bunch of youth scouts and to change that and to go scout youth teams all over the country and try and get the best kids into their own academies. You know, say homegrown territories are gone and you can do that. Um, it's not like they're even capable of that. So if you start an MLS only academy league, you're going to miss a lot of kids. And where do those kids go? So I think it's a good thing that they are casting that wider net and trying to be a little more inclusion inclusionary. Uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how those relationships play out and, and who exactly ends up in it and where those teams are coming from. Um, so I don't know, man, this is going to be, I mean, it's going to be kind of wild west for, for a moment as it all gets figured out and as the dust settles. Yeah. The um, interesting part. It's going to be really, really interesting. And the ramifications are going to be long lasting. And you mentioned this, Sam, but like the cost of if you're just playing MLS teams is, is high, right? Because you're flying all the time. And so you have to. Yeah. And we, we haven't even mentioned, we have not even mentioned, Paul, that like, you know, MLS teams are talking about like, well, to offset those, you, you do away with U19s maybe. Right. Well, I think, I think. You know, we talk about it, the cost for MLS teams that have billionaire owners. Those costs still exist for whatever clubs they're trying to bring into this league. And so the the threshold for how many teams are going to be a part of this is going to be set by creating enough of a regional competition that the travel costs are manageable for non-MLS clubs. And that's that's a big part of this, too, because... Those travel costs are yeah. extensive, and especially if you're going to be expecting teams like, you know, De Anza or Solar or something to be flying to MLS cities to play games on a more frequent basis. It's not a realistic business model. Uh, right, and especially if U.S. soccer isn't subsidizing any of those trips. Exactly, and so there, there are just so many different layers to this. What you know? What does the competition look like? Do we see the 15s and the 17s, the 19s go away, and does it go back to 16s and 18s, and then you have an easier transition to your USL team, your reserve team? You know, there. You know that part of it still has yeah, to and be what, figured out. What does that know? even look like? You right? talk- do MLS teams stay in USL? Do they form a reserve league of their own? Like, what is that? Do they all go to League One? Who knows? Right, and you talk to CSOs, and you start to say, okay, well, what does it look like beyond that? Okay, well. A lot of them are saying we, we plan for our 14s and our 13s and our 12s and all those younger age groups to play in a local league. And we want to get the best local competition where and but also have regional partnerships where we're still getting really competitive games and, and increasing the number of GA like tournaments for those clubs so that they can still get high, high competition games, but without traveling. So without extensive travel. So, you know, that's the next layer, too. You know, this this first league that comes out is going to be for these older age groups, but the, the the clubs themselves are now working on what does it look like for our younger age groups? Where are they playing? Yeah. It, it, there's so many things that are happening at once. And again, like I said, I mean, the timeline under which the MLS is trying to accomplish this is so minimal. And that goes back to the it's beginning tight. of this yeah. podcast. It goes back to the decision yeah. of how the this soccer, yeah. unfolded from, from Soccer House. And oh, by the way, they they have a whole global pandemic, and how they're going to come out of that with their their first team league to deal with too. There's it's not like there's nothing else going on here. So I don't envy the decision makers um, really anywhere right now. They have tough jobs on their hands, all of them. So um, good luck to you if you're listening to this show. 
but um yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be really really interesting really really complex um i think there is a good opportunity to make it better than what it was um there is also risk that it it becomes worse (laughs) and it just becomes an unholy ungodly mess sort of like what it was when we were growing up paul yeah, I mean, depending on who you're talking to, I mean, it's always in in uh, hindsight, it was the greatest system ever. ODP was awesome. High school soccer was great. College soccer was the best. The youth you know system I, created all these great say, players. Just, the 2002 can, World Cup team was a direct result of yes, the way yes. the, the clear uh, yes. organization of you of youth soccer back in the day, and it's just the rosiest outlook ever. And you know, it's not true. I, I I think I think that I, th- I agree with you there, but I think it's also telling that um, the senior national team didn't get any better um, through the DA and through organizing it, right? So it just kind of goes to show you, like you know, if we went back in time to 2006 or 2007, and you said design a new youth system, I think it probably would have, you know, I think like the DA made sense, right? Like designing it how they designed it, I think it made sense. It obviously, you know, didn't quite work out to plan. <laughs> um, and I think it's fair to say that that it didn't really serve the first generations coming through. It's going to be interesting to see what these, like, you know, 16, 17 to 22-year-olds pan out as. The the kids that went through the DA when it was more mature. Um, you know, the Christian Pulisics down to the Gio Reynas. Those, those, ty- those kinds of kids. Um, but I don't know, man. This, this whole scene... It's like just this this past week for me has been a pretty instructive learning experience as someone who, you know, doesn't cover the youth game um, day in, day out. You know, there are people that do that and do a great job of that. Travis Clark over at Top Drawer Soccer. I've had a lot of conversations with him on the phone this week just to help me clarify some basic questions that I had. Um, So shout out to him. But yeah, it's just been it's it's been wild and i think there is like i said i think there is an opportunity here for it to get better i also think there's a risk that it turns into an even bigger mess which wouldn't be great for me one area that i'd like to put on record as something that really annoyed the heck out of me with the da and i think is an issue that really will be important for mls to to keep in mind And and this goes down to the idea of patting yourself on the back which everyone likes to do i mean Shoot, we did it at the beginning of this show, right? Like, you you want to talk about how well you're doing and you want proof yeah, yeah, of that, yeah. right? U.S. soccer would always tout how many players in their national team camps were coming from U.S. soccer-run development academy teams. And mm-hmm. that wasn't a mistake. Every press they were They were looking at academy teams. They were requiring academy players to be at the national team level. And it was... In one hand, logistically, it made things easier. You had showcases and you had all these things. Scouting was focused around the DA. It was the higher level teams. Um, It was supposed to be the very highest level. But I think it narrowed the focus too much in a very big country. And and the resources were too narrow as a result, right? You don't need to hire all these other scouts if all you're doing is scouting these games and these tournaments. And... And the result was that I would get angry every time I saw a camp that had just DA kids. Because to me, that's a really bad sign that you're not doing a good enough job of finding the best kids. And, you know, I think it'll be really important for the development of the game in this country that U.S. soccer, as they as they claimed and, and kind of promised in this press release, 
as they turn some of that $12 million into scouting resources, um, that they really hire a staff capable of covering more games and more ground across more leagues looking for the best players. And that doesn't always mean those players are going to end up in a national team camp. It might mean that those players end up in a pro academy or, you know, get funneled into the new top league. And that's a part of the scouting process. But, you know, I hope it eliminates this this pattern that was emerging of, of you know, bragging on the DA and always looking for DA kids and just saying they were the best because they were DA. I know sometimes it was true. I know a lot of times it was true. But you can't afford to do that in a country as vast as the United States. And, um, you know, I really hope that that part of it changes at U.S. soccer and that MLS keeps an eye on that, too. And I think it'll be an interesting story to write about how youth scouting changes now that there's not, you know, a clear one league that you will focus your scouting on. Um yeah. Or, or an incentive to just focus on scouting that one one league. Hundred percent. And uh, you know, I don't have a lot left, but I did want to say a couple of other things, and I, I'm kind of almost already regretting what I'm about to say, um, or at least part of what I'm about to say. One part I'm not regretting, and that's kind of like shout out to high school soccer. Um, it's fun. It's cool to play with your friends, and I think there are some good like kind of leadership qualities that can arise from that. And I think Paul, you're in agreement there. Um, you know, not that it's the best thing in the world necessarily, but there are some merits to it. The other is I hope that whatever arises out of this, I hope it does breed kind of an older style of American player, because I think for whatever reason, a lot of that grit and tenacity that U.S. national teams were famous for um, back in the day has evaporated. Um, and I don't know if that's down to the D.A., down to just the way society has moved down to, hey, soccer matters more here. And it's not something where you're coming up in school and you're getting made fun of for playing soccer and you have a massive chip on your shoulder to, to prove to your buddies that like, hey, this is a real sport too. <laughs> you know, like who knows, right? I don't know. But maybe, and maybe I'm just going grumpy old man right now, but I do hope whatever comes out of this, um, U.S. soccer finds a little bit of that, uh, that grit and tenacity that once that it was once defined by and is able to combine that kind of as well with an increased uh, technical capability across the board too. So hopefully that's what comes out of this. Yeah. So many, so many interesting areas to keep an eye on the the way philosophy changes in coaching, you know, the requirements of coaching licenses at, at within these different leagues, the focus of us soccer, where does this money go into player development? Does it go into scouting? Does it go into coaching? Do they make coaching more accessible? There's a big responsibility now on us soccer to, to still be a governing body that is focused on player development. And, you know, and then, of right. course, we get into the co- competition levels and what does it look like and all those specifics. But at the broadest level, it's, you know, this is about player development and, and having the right goals in mind. And, you know, those goals have to be improving the domestic player. And and that's got to be paramount. And, and that's on the girls' side and the boys' side, you know. And um, mm-hmm. I hope that in a in a culture that has long prioritized the business and the money and results more than anything um that things will change and i i don't have a lot of faith as somebody who grew up playing and like you sam like has seen this time and time again changes happen and 
and and people talking about how it's going to be different and why they can do it better and then yeah. it just and falls into the same, same thing um but i yeah. hope that you know that we as this continues to evolve we see you know i do think that that one aspect that we can talk about in the player development you kind of alluded to this earlier with the fact that they mandated more training sessions and fewer games and more competitive games more meaningful games you know that was that was important that that actually created change in this country you know and that was important for specifically player development that that evolution continues that maybe it's not perfect it won't be perfect there will be flaws there will be things that get wrong there will be teams I think that they left could play out some more games but they personally. they need to get <laughs> things right yeah they do and one last thing and i i think everyone listening will agree and i think paul you'll agree here too um but if if you are a kid who played in the da and you're wondering um what is next for you in your soccer career and your journey um we hope it works out the best for you because you're the one that's really affected by this and uh i know there's a lot of uncertainty and maybe even some anxiety there um so keep on playing wherever you can and uh hopefully this new league structure whatever comes out of it works out for you um because you're the one that gets hurt in all this and that's kind of a damn shame um so anyway that's the last thing i wanted to say you got anything else uh you need to get off your chest there if you're a kid listening to this go play as much pickup as you can try things do do things that you wouldn't do in your club structure find you know I always joke. I always find the joy in the game. You know, in in DC, it was the Bolivian League. You know, go find those leagues where where it's about kind of the nitty gritty and and beating somebody and making somebody. And maybe it's with you and your buddies, you know, three on three or four on four on a weekend. But you know that that part of the game. Tennis courts are great for three on three. One hundred percent. It's just as important. I mean, go look at the the story I wrote earlier this year with Eddie Johnson. He talked about how critical that was to players like Clint Dempsey and himself. You know. Uh, that's still such an important part of development and don't you know don't no matter what these leagues end up looking like no matter which league your team ends up playing in whether you want to call it the top tier or the second tier or whatever people are going to call it you know go find ways to play more and 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 to love the game outside of those organizational structures well said paul I can't I can't top that um but thank you all for listening to this uh kind of different unique episode of allocation disorder hopefully you enjoyed it hopefully you learned a thing or two and uh yeah until next time i'm sam stasekel he's paul tenorio this has been allocation disorder signing off